like in 10 years, if you had to build a portfolio and say 10 years from now, this is the portfolio I want, what would it look like? And the key part of that statement is you have no idea what the world's going to look like in 10 years. You have no idea if you're going to like stocks more than bonds, if you're going to like commodities, if you're going to, you have no active, you have no possible active view in 10 years. And so that's the, and so think of that as your definition of passive, as your definition of beta, build the best portfolio you can that you'd be happy having in 10 years. And then think of active as everything that you do between now and then. Hello, and welcome to the Resolve Rifts Investment Podcast, where the science of investing meets real-world application. Join Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, Rodrigo Gordillo, and Richard Latterman of Resolve Asset Management as they bring their extensive investment experience to bear on deep dives into the current market trends, optimal portfolio construction, and risk management techniques helping animate the world of quantitative investing with a global macro perspective. This podcast is a must-listen for professional capital allocators seeking to navigate the complexities of global markets with skill and confidence. Welcome to the journey. Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo are principals of Resolve Asset Management Global. All opinions expressed by the principals are their own and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. Okay, today everyone is going to be very excited to see we've got Chris Schindler back in the hot seat from Castlefield. Chris, how you doing today? How's Toronto? Not so bad right now. One or two degrees better than last week when it was about minus 10 snowing. So probably not quite as nice as where you guys are. That's possible. It's pretty gray here today too, but no snow on the ground. You'll be happy to hear. <laughs> For those who don't know, we've had Chris on two or three times in the past. They're always crowd favorites. We both, we go broad and deep. Chris's background, we'll, get, we'll obviously give a more detailed background or bio for Chris, worked at one of Canada's major public pension plans for, for many years, ran their quant desk and has spun off into his own uh, quant hedge fund, primarily trading global futures markets. So we're going to cover a, a variety of topics today related to his past and his present, potentially his future. And um, so let's, let's start with well, well let's not let's not hide where, where he's at. It's Castlefield. Is that that's the name of the firm? That's right. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, where is there a website? Is there just let's get it out there at the beginning too? Is, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, there's a website that has, I believe, a phone number and an email address, and that's about it on it right now. Oh, so nice. Very, very, <laughs> very professional takeaway clothes there. I love it. The scarcity clothes. That's right. So let's start with what we're currently facing. You know, it's funny because. I think our first chat was probably in 2020. We had this crazy concentrated tech rally. Actually, it was kind of like this mean stock, low grade, low quality right. tech rally. And we're sort of back in a way to where we were there. We don't have any SPACs to contend with at the moment, but it, you know, we're back into that massively concentrated technology oriented large cap rally that we experienced for much of the 2010s, certainly the back half of the 2010s. So I thought it might be useful to revisit that period. You know, I think a, a lot of people who've only been investing for the last 
10 or 15 years, I've only really experienced an environment where U.S. and especially U.S. big cap tech was really the only game in town. Do you think we're back in that kind of environment or do you think there's going to be a lot more opportunities over the next decade than we experienced in the previous decade? Holy moly, you guys come in swing, eh? So, look, and, and I guess you don't go back to 2010s, you can go away. You can go back to the 2000s or, you know, the, the NASDAQ bubble yeah. when you really want to talk about concentration. Yeah, I mean, it was, it's, that was interrupted, right? For that yeah. 2000 to 2012 period, yeah. right? Well, especially in Canada. I remember we, um, a huge problem for anyone forced to benchmark to, to public markets where, a public market index where if you want to hold a Canadian index, you have to have like 30 or 40% of your weight in Nortel. Yeah. You know, and, and so, you know, it's, there's obviously a lot to this question. Do these environments show up? They, yeah, like they obviously do. We've been through one, we absolutely have been, like the features have been hard to predict, but you can kind of point to some features of tech that make it much easier, I think, to explain how it can get so concentrated and how it can get like what looks bubbly at times, I guess, as well. And part of it, I think, has to do with just, it'll be pretty hard for someone to just say, I'm going to start up a new business and, and turn it into a billion dollar show and, you know, in a couple of years. But like, obviously with the infinite leverage of technology, especially, you know, online technology and, and the huge scalability, you know, you can create these huge potential future businesses, uh, almost out of like, it feels like out of nothing. And. And, and they're so hard to value. And right, part of the problem with the NASDAQ bubble was everything looked reasonable. I don't know if stuff looked reasonable or not, but you, went, you can imagine why this one company, if it succeeds, could be massively successful and could be massively valuable. But the challenge was all 10 or 20 of them couldn't be. And right. so you had situations where individually it might make some sense if you didn't get a, a sense of the context of the entire space or sector. So that's like, that's part of the problem. And we've seen that over and over again, where it, they, they can't all succeed because they're, together they're, they're making a bigger claim on future economic growth or future wealth that, that is impossible to exist. And so together, like all these valuations can't make sense. And then you're going to figure out, well, like, does the entire index have to re reset or do you have to go after the individuals and, and figure out you know, which ones will go, which ones won't? Because it's, it's so easy looking back to say, man, these are billion dollar companies, but if they're the one in 50 survivors. Or you've got entire spaces that just didn't work and went to zero. It's much harder to predict that going forward. But it, yeah. and, and like, I mean, obviously that's the challenge, you know. And I guess the other thing is because a lot of these businesses, and and I understand, I'm talking about more of the ones that we just don't know what they're worth yet, because because so many of their cash flows are way out in the future. They're kind of, well, they're they're almost like a private equity firm that's marked to model. They don't have anything that really moves them up or down, you know, on, you know, and sort of in, in the, on the day to day, and they're just based on some future possibility. And that leads to two or three really weird price dynamics, which can lead to this concentration. The first one is when you have, you know, analysts and, 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 and I think that there's a fair amount of evidence that analysts tend to crowd with each other. And strangely, the more volatile and uncertain the stock, the more they tend to crowd with each other relative to the volatility, because they have this benchmark risk of being benchmarked to their peers and looking wrong relative to their peers. And so. You actually find that for really uncertain stuff, that's like really high volatile, they crowd even more. It creates more of these crowding effects and you get more of these sort right. of bubbly effects. And, and so that's like part of it. And that leads to momentum in these names, which can really happen. And then, and of course they drag retail in along with them along the way. And you can put that up against what feels like almost a totally different statement, but I think they're actually kind of work together, which is the, you know, when you have a dispersion of opinions on something, just straight up, but like, and, and I'm talking about like analysts 
old crowded here. I mean, like actual people in the market who are betting actually have a dispersion of opinions. You know, like Captain sort of assumes that everyone has homogenous expectations, but like that's clearly not true. And as soon as you allow for heterogeneous expectations, you get these sort of weird effects where the more uncertain the outcome, the more the price gets pushed up. And, and I don't know if you guys have seen any of these papers, but the, I mean, these are, this is sort of, a, a, is this making any sense to you or do you want me to go into this bit more detail? Yeah, don't worry, definitely yeah. keep going, yeah. Yeah, so imagine if you had a world where, you know, there's, there's some people saw a stock was worth 101 and some worth 102 and some worth 103 and some worth 99, 98, 97. And you kind of think that in a perfect world, it would settle at what the average dollar thinks it's worth. And we've had this conversation a lot about privates because it really, really shows up in privates. And in private equity, it's the most extreme form of this it, the, the price doesn't settle what the market thinks it's worth. The price settles on what the most wildly optimistic person's willing to pay. So, you know, if someone if someone's going to buy a house and, and you know the market thinks it's worth a million, and some people think it's worth eight hundred, and some with and one guy goes it's worth two hundred or it's worth two million, it sells for two million. It sells worth like and, and so prices push off to the right when you have dispersion of opinion when you can't short the price back down to zero. And the privates cannot be shorted back, so they go all the way to what the most wildly optimistic person's willing to pay. But if you have a world where you got more longs than shorts, or you have a, not enough shorts to pull the longs back, and we're always in a world where there's a long bias, there's more of like there's more you know potential long buyers than short buyers, then a dispersive opinion is going to bias you towards the tails and to the right tail. And so the bigger the dispersion of like, like I don't know what this thing is worth, and some people think it's worth nothing, something is worth a ton, that pushes you to the right as well and creates a bubble in that space as well. So you can kind of see how the massive uncertainty of these things will result in in A, a bias high and momentum, which we see all the time. And so does it, so you can push all of that against, hmm, it makes it pretty risky against, I think like one other thing you have to pay attention to and, and like, look, there's always crazy issues when you're doing market cap and market cap weighting and people, people have that as a benchmark, right? The challenge of market cap as your benchmark is that it can be an incredibly painful benchmark it's because of the, if the if the small number of names do extremely well and, and you're anything other than the, than the market, you're going to get, it's going to crush you at times. And there are going to be times when you crush it because it does badly, but it's, it's a really inefficient benchmark in a lot of ways to measure your performance against, but it is, it is what people do measure performance against. And so you get these benchmark issues associated with, and so like there's, there's a whole universe of quant and, and you know, how do we think of an alternative to market cap indices yeah. and think of them as, as, as processes and, and, and benchmarks and. It, this is going to go on, 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 on a total left turn, by the way, here. Take it. Um, but, uh, you know, I spend a lot of time thinking about how do we how alternatives to market cap weighting because you do get this massive concentration risk in a small number of names. And like the most naive alternative to market cap weighting, which was for sure eliminates like, you know, any kind of mega cap bias is just you can weight things. Mm -hmm. And it's actually like in the very long term, a surprisingly strong solution for equities is just equaling all the names, but it's. Oh, it's shockingly naive. And and it's got so we did this. We 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 ran an alternative to to market cap weighting. We, we ran an equal weight. And and the problem like, and there are lots of problems with equal weight. But what it does do is it says, I don't care what anyone thinks this is worth. I don't care what the market thinks it's worth. I don't care. I'm just gonna put one dollar in each of these things and 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 so be it. Now, lots of problems with that. But one of the ones that always bugged me about equal weighting anything was this definition of well, what's the thing you're equal weighted? I mean, you could say like, imagine if you could wait in countries around the world and I'm going to put $1 in the United States and $1 in Canada and $1 in France. And then imagine the United States breaks up into 50, you know, independent little countries. 
And that thing that you used to have $1 in, you now go, now I'm going to put $50 in it. You're going to bet 50 times as much on the exact same thing just because of how it was defined. And, and you have this problem with equal weighting, which is like called the unit problem of equal weighting, which was like, how do we think about what's the unit? Because it's clearly, it's a definitional issue. And if, if things come together, or if things split up, I'm going to completely change my weightings based on what shouldn't change my weightings. And that's like a big problem with equal weighting. And so market cap weighting, it's got like a lot of efficiencies to it. It's got a lot of, you know, like I say efficiencies, it's got theory behind it that you can kind of stand by. But at the end of the day, it's people's opinions about things. It's the whole market's opinion about things, but the price does move on that. Ecoweight's got this definition of, of independent unit problem. And so there's a subcategory of things in between. And, and so this is what, this is the sort of the three categories of, of alternative indices we created, what you call kind of like a fundamental valuator, right? And a fundamental valuator is, is, is different again because it takes something about the companies. And so like, you know, Rob Arnett, I think is a guy who's really covering this a lot, but he would say like, it could be anything. Like, it could be a number of parking spots in the parking lot. It could be a number of employees, but it's typically revenues or dividends or cash flow or something that kind of speaks to the size. And he something oriented more towards a fundamental criteria it, rather than well, just it, price and, and times. And so, so you think about Ecoway, and Ecoway's got one extra really, this is totally off. Bar now, but it's got one really cool feature at Ecoweight, which has got like a cut like an energy capture or a volatility capture. Because if you have a number of companies that are equal weighted and, and, and you always have error terms, you know, like you have surprises, surprise the upside, surprise the downside. And, in, and what a market cap does, or if you take an equal weight and you don't rebalance it, then the companies that get surprised the upsides grow. So they have they had positive shocks, and the companies that have negative shocks shrink. And you end up overweighting the ones that have positive shocks and underweighting the ones with negative shocks. And, and if there's any reversion to the mean. You know, and so if, if prices project those further out, if there's any reversion to the mean, then you've, you're kind of backwards of what you'd like to do. What you really want to do is buy the one you expect to, to revert back and you want to sell the one that's, that's had a, a, a positive bias and market cap was the exact opposite of that. So anytime you equal weight or anytime you rebalance to a starting process, you're going to capture some of that natural mean reversion. And, and in fact, a huge, huge proportion of a lot of quant alpha and value add is in fact that energy recapture. And so the, I think Rob Arnett was able to show, I don't know if he showed this or something else, did, but you could take like the inverse of his portfolios and they also beat market cap just yep. because the energy capture is, is, is pretty, is pretty helpful. Anyway, but so one of the things that the, that any kind of fundamental weighting does is it, you know, it, when the fundamentals change, you buy more or less, but it doesn't move the price because of people's opinions, because of the market's opinion projecting that into the future, because that projecting into the future tends to cause issues. So, and if he's never sold it as this, I've never really seen it presented this, but the reason I like, I like this idea is if I took a company and I split it into 10 pieces, I will still have the same amount of weight in that new thing split up 10 ways than I would have on the original and vice versa. And so it's kind of an equal weight, but it's an equal weight by size or something a bit more fundamental than just like this equal weight. And, and between those, now you start to say, how do I invest in a, in a market that's got some very, very concentrated companies in it? And, and you have to think, take a step back and say, if those concentrated companies were in fact 100 companies that came together, well, maybe it's not so bad. Maybe that is, well, you know, like it's a quarter of the weight, but, but if it was a massive conglomerate that brought together, maybe it's not as concentrated as I think it is. Mm -hmm. But if it's a single thing with a, with a small number of risk factors, just blown up a massive size, you know, that's when I got people worried about. And so we start to think again, which is like, how do I determine how many effectively independent companies are in that company to get a proper sense of how concentrated it is. And, and I'll just say those are, there's, there's a lot of topics in that, but just like, like is there a fundamental reason why tech 
And especially tech with earnings that'll be projected way out in the future is way harder to value. Like, absolutely. Does that result in trending and possibly higher prices that, that then have to correct and, and disappoint going forward? Like, probably. Does that mean that Google, is Google a single factor or is it a conglomerate? Or how do you think about that? I think you got to get a little bit deeper before you say this, this is a massive tech concentration because Google's not really, Google's a tech company, but it's also an advertising company. It's also, it's, it's a media company. I mean, maybe it's a bit more. Maybe it's not quite as concentrated as it feels. Well, some of them are more concentrated than others. I mean, obviously, Microsoft is exposed to virtually every sector of the economy. It's a massive global conglomerate. Same with Google. And yeah. NVIDIA reminds me more of like a Nortel or JDS Uniphase, right? Remember JDS Uniphase with their optical switching? And, you know, everyone assumed that the internet was going to have optical, optical switching. And that was going to be the tech that everyone settled on. And JDS Unified just went to the moon, you know. It's these kinds of concentrated bets on on these narrow tech outcomes that become especially risky, right? But I mean, just from an advisor standpoint, how do you manage this and manage client expectations? It terrifies me to see investing in global cap weighted U.S. equities above sixty percent of global cap weight now, and seven companies worth, you know, up almost thirty percent of yeah. uh, U.S. equity valuation. Like it's just that you just have this sort of, you're, you're going on this massive amount of faith and taking this huge concentrated bet. If you don't, you risk being totally left behind. If you do, then you're taking this concentrated bet. It feels like a no-win situation. I mean, how do big asset managers deal with this, especially when they're benchmarking against peers on a year-in, year-out basis? Like it seems like it's just a hard problem. Yeah, and the challenge, and, and I don't know how you break it, but the problem with it is is the benchmarking. At the end of the day, if you are always going to compare someone to something, then they are always going to have to look somewhat like that thing. And and, you, and instead of being a maximum sharp ratio investor where they're trying to make as much money for as you know as much as much return for as much risk as possible, you force them to have a different definition of risk, which is their tracking error to the benchmark and and. Their optimization becomes return over tracking of the benchmark, which is a fundamentally like much less useful thing. Uh, and it's much less useful for you. And they say like when typically I say you're looking for managers and I think you just have to get comfortable with, I mean, if a manager is properly a long short space, they should have no beta anyway, and you shouldn't care. You literally should just say, I've got my, you know, and, and whether I'm talking about as a portfolio constructor, how much of this stuff do I want in, in my beta? You separate that question out for a second and say, yeah. let's, say let's say I've somehow made that decision. Then for my managers, I should give them the right benchmark and I should give them the right risk definitions and the right governance and so that so that this doesn't affect them at all. They have a good stock pick over here and, and, and they should make it regardless of what the beta is and is doing. Now that's 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 a pie in the sky kind of nice statement. It typically doesn't go that way. But even for you know, even if you're saying like I'm still I'm investing my money in this beta, what do I do about it? And, and it's funny because when we first started looking at this and how to think about weighting countries, and, and, and I think we we're doing this research in the early 2000s, and the, and, and the country that really stuck, stuck out in the history, you know, the last 20 or 30 years was Japan. Because Japan in the late 80s had, had looked exactly like the US does now. It was a massive portion of MSCI. And of course it got super expensive as I, and there was all, even all the tiger funds and everyone was, 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 was just throwing money into it for 15 years and it got so expensive and then, and then it just broke. And it broke. And if you were, you know, MSCI weighting Japan, you got crushed. And if you had, you know, underweighted a bit, you did well because you had a very, very large concentrated exposure to a relatively small 
some set of the universe. And, and I think over the very long term, these moves tend to punish you and you tend to want to disperse it because, because there's, a, there's always the mixture of the fundamentals and then the market mania behind it. And, and the market mania behind it is the, is the piece that always over projects and, and any market cap weighted, which is a mixture of the fundamentals and the market's projection down into the future is, is almost certainly going to lead to over projections. The problem is, can you survive in the short run long enough leading against that to, to, to prove the thesis? That's the tricky yeah. part. It's, it's a combination of, of this overvalued market and a strong trend, right? Yep. So, and this is where it gets really dangerous because when the overvalued market trend turns and increasingly you get that larger and larger spikes in volatility where the dip is bought until such time it's a 25 or 30% and the dip isn't bought or it's only bought up 10 or 15 and the trend is now changed and different and the world of investors is always sort of slower to pick that up in the, in the final trend change. And then you have this exposure, this overexposure to the largest market just by the market cap chasing and you have yeah. the risk unwind. And, and so yeah. that's, and, you know, the valuation side of it is important, but man, when the trend is strong, it's a really hard problem. Yeah. And which I guess when you're saying the trend is strong relative to the valuation, you're just, you're also to put another way, you're just saying the behavioral sign of right it's that it's that it's that momentum that you know that punching fist through the 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 enthusiasm that continues and as long as it continues the valuations don't matter i mean it's expensive it's not as expensive it's ever been it's not as expensive as japan was and we don't know if any of those are even limits on how expensive something could become in a in a strongly trending market yep so and that's exactly it And, and so then you end up with you know sort of various forms of this which is like, look, you could stay along the trend, but you've got to be aware that the more crowded it gets, the quicker and sharper it can turn back on you because there's, because there's like a growing liquidity buildup and, and there'll be a growing crazy rush on the way out. I, I think my guess is a lot of players get that. I don't know if the retail side sees it as clearly, but I think a lot of players get the growing riskiness of it, but there's always that you have to keep playing while it's still happening and, and it's, because it's just so painful to lean against it. So, uh, and this, it all comes down to, it's a benchmarking problem. Did you Without ever do a doubt. Work, did you ever do any work internally on um, the double exponentials? Like as the as the curve approaches a certain level of criticality and the fractals and all that kind of stuff. I forget the name of the French mathematician who was mapping all that, and you worked that paper. But go ahead, Mandelbrot. You know, he's one of them. But yeah, Mandel Mandelbrot is that Mandelbrot would be one of like the fractal yeah. guys. But but yeah, so the um, I mean, yeah, that's that's a big. So when markets go parabolic. But the, the issue is always is, is well, like, you know, like it's the same definition of anything. It's like a bubble is really easy to see after the fact, after it's popped. Um, it's very, very hard to know if this thing that's running up is that the bubble yet or is it the peak of the bubble, you know, and, and you know, Jeremy Grantham and GMO has done a, a huge amount of work on trying to just, you know, he's, he's based on all bubbles mean revert. But the, the challenge with that is after the fact, yes, all bubbles mean reverted because you kind of defined it as a thing that went up and came back down. You know, Microsoft or Apple just, are they bubbles? Well, it's hard to say. They just, they kept going for like 15, 20 years. And, and so, I mean, maybe at some point in, in the far future, you'll be able to look back and say, yeah, yeah, they were bubbles, they'd be reverted. But, but it's, it's, I don't think it's quite as obvious. And, and so he tries yeah. to fight in bubbles relative to fundamentals. But the problem is they need to revert or the fundamentals catcher. And it's one of those two. The story always need to have a plausible outcome where the fundamentals could catch up. I mean, there's very good narratives around why 
you know, Meta, Google, NVIDIA, Microsoft deserve these ultra premium multiples, right? The new story is AI and all the compute that's going to be required. In 2000, it was, it was internet and switches and all that kind of stuff in Japan. It was their Six Sigma manufacturing process. They were going to completely dominate global tech manufacturing and auto manufacturing. And, you know, that all got swept up in their, in their banking sector and, and the real estate sector. You know, I remember in 1989, the Emperor's Palace in yeah. Tokyo was valued at a higher total valuation than all the land in California, right? Like, and yeah. there's a plausible reason for this every time, right? And there's this potential every time for this time to truly be different. You know, maybe fast takeoff AI actually does mandate this kind of overvaluation. Maybe software, you know, uh, Mark Andreessen said software eats the world. Maybe this is the time when software eats the world. Like there's always gotta be this plausible explanation in order for the markets to rise to this kind of bubble level, right? Maybe, well, but then you see, I, I, it's like, it, unless, there's, unless it's also a, an incredible, like just creator of mass wealth for everyone, you, you can't, you can't plow this one up because of potential ability to grab the teacher pie and still keep these together. There has to be like, once again, you got to add all of what, like those gross require what kind of earnings and what kind of cash flows or what kind of percentage of the total world pie at some point. And you go, does that make sense? Because if they're claiming 2X of what it will ever be, then no, those things don't all add up. It's just the question is like, one of those 10 may be correctly valued. Maybe it goes even bigger. Yeah. But, but that's, I mean, that's obviously, yeah, there's, there's always a story. Uh, there's no doubt there's always a story and it has to make a bit of sense and it can make a lot of sense, you know, and, and we, we all heard the stories like all the way through, like through the, through the years and through the decades, we've heard the stories. I mean, I guess NFTs had a story. I, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to hold their wealth when the story moves on to someone else. And and the other thing is the initial conditions can, they're important and they're different, right? 1990, you had a significant earnings contraction, yet the market did not go down. The early 90s, the S&P kind of sailed through whilst earnings were contracting. I mean, yields were high and they, it looked over the recession almost. And so you also don't know what the initial zeitgeist of the market is when yeah. you go through the through the transition. There's so many dimensions to this. It, it's it's mind-boggling. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's like no doubt. And I think, you know, like with, especially when Japan peaked in 89 and, and I mean, I'm going to make up some numbers, but I think like 15, 20 years later, it's stock market was down. I can't remember. Like 90%. It was like, in, in, like it was so much and it's real estate market was down 95%. It was, it was just unbelievable crushings. It's only but, approaching those numbers today. Yeah. Yeah. It's just getting <laughs> it's back. Just and, getting and, back you know, and, and I think like from like 2000, 2010, I think Japan's earnings growth was faster than the U S is like it's starting points really matter. And, and whether or not, and you guys see this lots of times, it's like, and you think about, you know, like risk parity stocks versus bonds. And you go like, like a, if you just went like, imagine you just you make some magic statement. It's like, they both should have the same sharp ratio over time. And if that's true, maybe this, who knows, but like. You know, if this guy runs off at a sharp of one over the last 10 years, it's either getting ahead of himself or catching up. And I don't know if you really know, because at the end of the day, I mean, who's to say, but, uh, or maybe a bit of both and, and it's either getting in front of itself and you should sell it or it's catching up and it's a good deal. And I, I guess that's kind of like a risk parenting statement. It's like if you were, um, if there, if the only two things you could invest in in the world were stocks and bonds and you had them, would you care? 
if this one happened to take from this one and then this one happened to take from this one, if you have both of them, I guess you're probably kind of fine. So if you have the world and the world is taking from here to give to here, as long as you've got a well-diversified basket, maybe you don't care as much um, well, as, as, got, as long as you do that right. Then you've got periods like 2022 that sort of, you know, makes makes a bit of a mockery of that stock bond diversification, right? Like this, you know, own some stocks, own some bonds. The idea is the bathtub, there's always a drip into the bathtub. And so the level is always rising, whether it rises more into equities, that doesn't really matter versus bonds because you own them both. But when the, you know, that bathtub sort of contracts, the levels contract, then, you know, you've got stocks and bonds both losing together, right? Which is why stocks and bonds, the, the two-legged stool typically doesn't balance, right? You've got to add that, that third leg. Yeah, I mean, at least. I, I, I guess that, so the statement there was like, if stocks and bonds were the only two things, and you right. had, I guess, yeah. a world where yeah, you yeah. could lever, delever. Yeah, like, I mean, obviously... When we first started our risk parity work, I mean, the very first thing we did is what stocks and bonds are dangerous, like hugely dangerous. And, and that would be a crazy, dangerous risk parity process. And, and assuming correlations are static and either zero or negative is also massively dangerous. And so, you know, if it, it's going to require some dynamicism and it's going to require some dynamicism on risk and correlation measures. And it's going to require other stuff because, and I think I presented this a while ago, because I, I know I gave this presentation back in 2018, when, when the last thing anyone in the world was thinking in 2018, you got to really stretch your mind back and remember, but it was like, people were still kind of freaking about deflation at that time. And the last thing anyone was thinking about was inflation. Yep. But, but it was, it's just always, it's inflation is always a risk and discount rate shocks are always a risk. And, and so building a portfolio that's resilient to, to inflation shocks and discount rate shocks, inflation shocks is easier because you can, because you can put some other stuff and you've got some, you know, some gold or some break evens or some you know, commodities, there's things that you can put together to, to get a decent attack on inflation. A discount rate shock, you know, that, that's itself distinct from growth and inflation shocks is much harder to defend against. Because, you know, and we just haven't said, had very many inflation shocks over the last few decades. So, you know, hedging against inflation or owning assets in a portfolio that are designed to do well during higher than expected inflation shocks has kind of made you look silly for a long time. You get these sort of periodic spikes where it pays off. And then you go through these long stretches of sort of this, you know, or at least you have over the last few decades, go through these long stretches of disinflationary growth. And, you know, any, any effort to diversify outside of stocks and bonds kind of makes you look silly for a long time. And then, you know, you get this, you get this spike and, and that sort of pays off, but it's just the investors haven't had much experience with that level of diversity paying off over the horizon that they've been managing money or had money invested in markets. So it's hard. Sure. Totally right. Uh, to that, I guess I would add a couple of things like, and I can't remember what I presented. Uh, I just probably re rechecked my old podcast before I, I came on, but the um, inflation, uh, I, so something like a break even, while, while it should respond and it responds to a certain type of inflation shock over a certain time frame, which is not necessarily what you're, you're always worried about. Probably has a negative expensive return over time, though, as a trade. And so, if you think about the things that, like, like you mentioned, where you go, I, I want to have a positive expensive return because I want it to contribute to my total portfolio. And and yeah, like it's going to be spiky at the right times. And then, how do you build something that's inflation sensitive that has more of a smooth positive return over time while still covering your inflation shots? And that was the big, I think, you know, sort of effort in saying, first of all, like when we when we built our inflation sensitive asset class. Against all sorts of pressures, saying like, why, why would we bother? 
The answer is because it's a risk and it could happen. And, and so whether or not you think it's going to happen, let's call that year and alpha on this whole thing, but, but you know, portfolio construction at the, at the portfolio level is just, I want to build things that are resilient to a variety of outcomes, regardless of who thinks what's going to happen, right? Call that like a beta portfolio construction. And, and even then you say, what's inflation? And, and, and everyone's got a different definition of inflation, right? Economists yeah. might say it's a CPI or you know, wage inflation, or they might say it's monetary inflation. A lot of people say it's monetary inflation is the correct definition of inflation. You know, if obviously, as we saw in the seventies and the you know, late sixties to even early eighties, inflation can be driven by commodities. Um, and it's so they call the supply side inflation. And if the price of commodities like go up by four times, well, yes, that's going to be massively inflationary. If it's persistent and it's across the set. And so for each of those different definitions of inflation, you actually need a different basket of assets to, to handle them. And so for monetary inflation, like what, what's your what's your best defense against monetary inflation? I don't know. There's like there's a variety of things you can think about from real assets to gold. Yeah. Um, you know, if it's if it's if you're looking purely at a definition of something like CPI or you know, then maybe a real return bond or or a break even is a better focus on that. If you're looking at like a source of inflation from the energy side or from the ags or from you know, commodities in general, then obviously commodities are the best source of that. You know, we built a a very broad basket inflation sensitive set of assets because we thought inflation can be there's lots of different definitions. There's lots of different causes, but the, the reason you care about inflation and the reason you need this, this asset class is because in general, inflationary shocks have a deleterious effect on most of the other assets in your portfolio. And so there's going to be times when your other assets get hit, especially your bonds get hit by inflationary, like unexpected inflation, but so do your businesses. And so, you know, if you think of your, your equity in your businesses and your, you know, are, are, are generally exposed. You need something to protect you. And then the real question is, well, how do you build something that protects as well as possible, but still has a positive drift to it? And so that's where, like, that's where we kind of built a quant program or a systematic program that does that, right? And you can start to think of, like, if I got these, like, what am I trying to do is I'm trying to cover inflation, but I'm also trying to get the positive risk premiums and drifts in the commodity space. Well, then you got to get, you got to dig, dig a bit deeper than just going long a couple of things. And yeah. that, once again, requires a bit more expertise, a bit more specialization. And a bit more leverage and a bit more like effort, but ultimately I think something that can be really, really helpful for a lot of investors. Yeah, and I mean, before you... once again, like if 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 you thought your bathtub was just stocks and bonds, yeah, you're gonna, you're going to get like you're going to get exposed. The the risk parity world is really like it's that statement of like if it's just money sloshing around, that if somehow you could own a bit of everything, then in that world maybe you're kind of okay. Right. Um, but then, then that goes like, well, that's great. Money's sloshing around and, and, and every single investor wants to get that alpha. Like I want to time that. I want to add value by getting in front of that sloshing or avoiding the sloshing or, you know, and of course that's what all active and macro and everything is, is trying to time the flows of money around. And it's like, yeah, stocks and bonds and commodities. Have you got that? If somehow that was your entire bathtub, that's great, but I'd still like to capture some of that energy between them. And, and that's where, you know, I think where a lot of the fun is. So speaking of alpha and trying to generate it, we spent a lot of time, you know, debating where the greater inefficiencies are, right? And the more sustainable inefficiencies are. And we've chatted a little bit about Samuelson's dictum on this program a few times and, you know, whether there's a, a greater opportunity to generate alpha through security selection or in, in the macro space, just in terms of hedging inflation risk, like, do you think it's it's conceivable to be able to manage inflation risk through more effective 
security selection? Like, can you just select a diverse basket of equities and or credits that make you more or less resilient to inflation and you don't need to have that third leg of the macro stool? Oh, that's interesting. Um, so Samuelson's dictum, that's the micro-efficient, macro-inefficient? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's an interesting statement. And I think it's one of those things that, um, you know, I, I got to just like quickly soon to say about inflation. I would, I would kind of think of uh, what you just said there is like, if I stock pick correctly, can I, can I create, like, can I, can I cover inflation from credit and stocks as opposed yeah. to having to go into commodities? And like, yeah. I mean, there's probably some inflation sensitive equities. And, and, and I think, you know, you, you could probably find things that have some inflation sensitivity. You know, is that, is that going to, is that something you would add to your basket of inflation sensitive assets? Yeah, probably. I think you have to be careful. And, and this is, um, you know, this is just an alpha beta separation statement, but you know, like if, if you think of like portfolio construction as I'm going to try and build my portfolio and, and I think of passive and we've had this conversation before, like what's passive, like nothing's truly passive, you know, and, and what's beta and, and my definition of beta like goes all over the place. But if you say one definition of it, it's like, it's going to do what it's going to do, regardless of what anyone expects it to do. And, and so if you put money in it, it doesn't matter what you think this is going to do. Once if you just, if you just leave it, it will, it does what it does. Um, that definition of beta, well, if you go, I'm going to put my betas together to try and create the best beta portfolio possible. There's obviously some active decisions there, but let's say there's like, you know, a, not as much timing. Then you need pieces that interact with each other in a nice way. And, yep. and if you're leaning on your ability to see the future and, and stock pick correctly to cover your inflation risk, that's, that's a little bit different. That's, that's, that's like saying, like, if I can see the future properly and I can call winners and losers, then I don't have this risk because I'm, because I can see the future. And it's like, well, maybe you do, maybe you don't. But that's an active management, and you're now relying on active management to cover your inflation risk. And I would say you, sh you should do that as well. But when I think about how pieces of my portfolio interact and portfolio construction, the way, and, and this is how we sold it to our board. And I think it's a really interesting thought process when you talk about your portfolio, your beta. We said, what's the portfolio you want to have in 10 years from now? And it's like not over the next 10 years, like in 10 years. If you had to build a portfolio and say, 10 years from now, this is the portfolio I want. What would it look like? And the key part of that statement is you have no idea what the world's going to look like in 10 years. You have no idea if you're going to like stocks more than bonds, if you're going to like commodities, if you're going to, you have no active, you have no possible active view in 10 years. And so that's the, and so think of that as your definition of passive, as your definition of beta. Build the best portfolio you can that you'd be happy having in 10 years. And then think of active as everything that you do between now and then. And so like, well, I have a view over the next month or the next two months, or the next five years and start to layer on that. But your center point, your starting point should be that thing that, that, that is the most unaffected by your view of the future, because your view of the future, make it, make those bets yeah. and, and, and decide how much risk to put in that bet based on how much, how confident you are in your ability to see the future and do that. But, but just understand that, that you could be wrong. And you might not see the future right. And you might not have that ability. You might not be as good as you think you are. You might be better than you think you are. Who knows? But, but separate those two pieces out and build the best beta you can. And that needs assets that interact well together, regardless of your ability to call the future. And then, and then if you want to try and add value through active management, absolutely do that. If you think part of that value is alpha and part of it is inflation protection, however you want to define that, for sure, go for it. Size it right, but separate those decisions out. Does that make and sense? The, the nice side effect there, Chris, the way you explain that is, now you also have something to measure your active bets against. You have this, let's call it unbiased, do no harm allocation of beta assets that you will have today and have in 10 years. And you're going to make active bets 
you know, against that or add additional diversification to that. And now you can actually measure whether your steps were in fact a creative or were they dilutive to the actual long-term returns of your portfolio. 100%. And, and, and yeah. you're exactly right. And that was a huge part of the push for creating that. We called it a theoretically optimal portfolio. And, and you never quite get to it because you have mm -hmm. constraints and you have, and you're not ever 10 years in the future. You have, you know, and you have a starting point and you're trying to move from there to something. And there's, there's a lot to that. But that's, if that's your center point, that then you can measure your distance from that and you can start to justify your distance from that. And, and that starts to really be your, act, your set of active decisions. And you have to start justifying why you are no longer, why, why, and why you're not going in that direction or why you're leaning against that. And start to think about how much active risk you're taking in, in those active decisions relative to that data. It's a really, really helpful starting point. And it's a much, at least from my opinion, because this is what we kind of you know put in place, it's a much better benchmark portfolio than almost anything else you can define. Like, like we talked at the beginning about the challenge of benchmarks. And if you're, if you have your, your CIO is responsible for, for investing at the total fund level and you give them a benchmark that's 60, 40, then it's going to be really hard for them to be anything that's like too far off of 60, 40, because you've made that their benchmark. And now that their definition of risk is tracking error to a 60, 40. If you say your benchmark is the median manager or the median pension plan or the median, anything that's going to look a lot like a 60, 40 or an 80, 20, or it's going to, you know, at the end of the day, that once again, they're centered around something that isn't necessarily the, the, the right starting point. And you go, how do we ever move off of that paradigm? And how do we move to something better if you're always getting benchmarked back to that paradigm? And, and but then the question inherently comes, well, then what's, what do you want your benchmark to be? Uh, and that becomes a, a, a really tricky question. But you say like, look, this is a good center point to start thinking about. And, and, and you have to be careful that it's then it's not too pie in the sky theoretical. Like it, it can't assume that you can do certain things that you you can't in reality, like like a leverage requirements or, you know, assets. There's not enough real return bonds on the planet to do what you want to do. It's like, well, that's not a fair benchmark. So it has to be like, you know, it has to move back to reality a little bit. But like as a benchmark construct, that and I sort of say like, I can measure. And, 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 and I guess the one other way you can think about benchmarking yourself, and this is like also super weird, but we also put in place a little bit was benchmark each year to the start of that year. So, because I'm just trying to break the, compare myself to the rest of the world or do what the rest of the world's doing. And now you can say, if I had held the portfolio that I started with for the entire year versus what I actually did, I could not measure my changes to some arbitrary starting point, which is just as arbitrary as anything else, but I can start to like, once again, focus on my alpha without contagioning it with someone else's definition of alpha, which is in their starting portfolio, which is, which becomes my beta, unfortunately. Right, and I, I don't want my beta to be someone else's alpha as my starting point because because yeah. that really messes up the whole decision. N nothing, so. nothing more dangerous than having a false premise to start the whole discussion of sixty forty is your benchmark and beat the median manager, and that, yep. that premise just contaminates every other decision down the track. Yeah, absolutely. And, then it's and so, the construction of the, the total fund levels. It's hard enough as it is, but understanding that the oh everything is affected by your benchmarks, like everything, and and so trying to break the paradigm of, or like the worst thing, if you're a CIO, is some other team that's not you, like a risk group, creates your benchmark, and now you're like, well, who's the CIO? Because the most important sending decisions, the asset allocation, maybe even the amount of risk you're taking, have been acted, like have been taken over by a different group, and 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 now you're just a, like a long short TAA around someone else's starting benchmark, and like I believe the CIO should own the total portfolio should own every major important decision. And so, and you can really see the challenges of that. But at the same time, you're a board member, you go, oh, wait, what? Are you completely unconstrained? 
And so then you can start to define, well, here's a news alternative benchmark, or here's a definition of risk, which is how much movement from where we are comfortable here to, to the end of the year. Like, and, and, and we were just trying to come up with alternative benchmarks that gave you the flexibility you needed to do the right things without giving you too much flexibility to, to constantly mitigate. To do the wrong things. The CIO's dilemma is just getting more and more uh, complex and, uh, and it difficult. Is. That was a, that was a big part of the challenge was was breaking that breaking that benchmark. And the another irony is that the fact that everybody is benchmarked to something is the you know a big reason why a lot of alternative sources of return exist. Right? Like you know, if the true definition of risk is tracking error and not the deviations and the value of the overall portfolio, then that is going to drive behavior that is aligned with minimizing tracking error, not aligned with minimizing total wealth variance. And that produces the opportunities that alternative managers, many alternative managers use to generate their returns. So, you know, you don't, you don't want everybody to become enlightened and, and abandon their benchmarks because then it has the potential to to kill the goose that, that lays the golden eggs for many alternative managers. But but yeah, don't we need some people it, making it, mistakes? Absolutely right. It's, <laughs> it's definitely one of the sources. It's it's probably not the only one. Like yeah. benchmarking, but it's definitely one where like, and you could kind of like just argue, you know, as, as I guess we have in the past, that it, it all comes down to anti crowdedness, right? Like it comes down to when you have a bunch of people following some set of rules or some process or some benchmark. Whenever whenever too many people crowd into it into any particular area and the prices get bid up and you know if the cash flows aren't affected by that crowdness because why would they be you know, the, the prices get bid up and the cash flow is the same and returns fall like, crowdedness is always going to result in in lower sharp ratio because uh, at the same time as that you know the returns fall the risk goes up because the possibility of that crowd all trying to lead together at the same time becomes significant as well so crowdedness of which benchmark hugging is a major one uh, is a significant source of potential alpha if you can if you can avoid or take advantage of that crowd address. So all of that to say, you know, if we, if we backtrack and went inflation, and we can come at it from the alpha side, we can come at it from the stock making side, and, and whether or not I, I know you kind of started with inflation, or or you even sort of went back and said, look, are we are we micro or macro efficient? I don't know. Like these these are these are interesting questions because like uh, uh, in one sense. It really does look like we have massive examples where we've been incredibly macro and efficient over the last 20, 25 years to the point of so obvious in hindsight and maybe for many people, super obvious at the time as well. And so, so you might argue then for micro efficiency and, and, and like, and I guess micro efficiency that it's got one other thing going for it, which is like as human beings, if you think about it for a second, like everything that we, like all of our senses are, are really good at relative, but terrible at absolute. Like I go like. If, if you asked me what star is brighter in the sky, I could say that one's brighter, but you know, or what's bigger, you know, or what sound is louder. I can, I can do relative really well. And that's what our senses are built to do. We're terrible at absolute. I could not give you like any sense of how bright that, that is. And in fact, even our relative senses are like log scale and you know, like what seems like twice as loud to us might actually be 10 times more decibels and the same thing with brightness and so like we're quite good at saying A versus B. And so if you think of like micro as a whole series of like, you got specialists focusing on a small number of stocks and you're stock picking and you're going a whole series of A versus B and doing some sort of ordinal rig. That's probably what we're most comfortable doing as humans, right? And, and so we probably are very confident in our ability to do that. And we probably are quite good at orderly ranking things. But then you let it get like You got a bunch of things that might even be ranked correctly, but when the whole picture, the absolute piece 
can just be miles off. And I think as humans, we're probably no good at the absolute peace. And, and so without something to anchor that absolute to, it, it probably can't go off in extreme distances. Well, here, here, here's we sort of came at it, right? We came at it from the perspective of two dimensions. One is portfolio agility, right? The big players out there just don't have much ability to take major bets, take major cracking error against their policy portfolio, right? Like taking major equity overweight versus target or major credit overweight or duration overweight versus target carries a lot of risk. Whereas taking, you know, maybe there's more tolerance for risk within the, you know, individual asset classes. And then there's just the agility, like you're, you're swinging these massive portfolios around. You just don't have the, the ability to move quickly enough to take advantage of many of the macro or micro inefficiencies that exist, right? So sort of taking it down one level, I would argue kind of 99% of all cognitive and computational energy focused on investing is within the individual silos, right? So you've got yeah. the equity group and you've got the credit group, you've got the, the rates yeah. group, you've got the There's currency There's no way group, the equity can tell you equities versus a commodity. Like it just doesn't, right. the question makes no sense. And so the you know, I think there's there's probably another thing that, that leads to microefficiency as well is, is the standard players. Like the ability to build a long, short basket in ARVnet is infinitely more powerful than the one-sided ARV of just trying to sell something you think is expensive or buy yeah. something you think is cheap. Yeah, because so you can hedge the beta space, within the security space, yeah. right? But there's nothing to, have, there's nothing to hedge against directly in the macro and, space. And, and it's much slower. It's much lower breadth. It's a much riskier bet. It's one of those things that you you have to trust that a bunch of other people are going to come in alongside with you over time for it to work on your behalf. Whereas, like in a standard player, you can like, you can almost do it yourself. It's it, it, you know so and it's gonna it's a very very different risk profile. So I think like there's a lot of reasons why you can think of micro efficient. I can also say like the last three or four years, like the micro efficiency argument seems to have like you know if you get too many people, uh, you know you've had a lot of craziness each day. I mean like think about. I think much of the market's changed the last two or three years with, you know, we were talking about the the retail, like, player just coming in and doing some crazy, you know, meme stocks. But you also have, like, like what's happened the last three years is, like, I don't I don't know how many day traders are still playing with cash equities versus the ones that are just playing with, like, like massive, massive size of one-day options. And yeah. the ability for a small player or a small set of players to come in and significantly move the market has changed a lot. And, and like these, I, I don't know why these things are like, it blows my mind that these, these are illegal because it just, it feels like if someone came in and fat figured the market to the size of the amount of manipulation, that's a market manipulation because he just hammered the market that hard. But if you went to 10 dealers and you bought, you know, enough of these things and then, and they just nudge it, then suddenly you've got a whole bunch of other people buying aggressively on your behalf and racing each other and potentially slamming way more into the market than you would ever do as an individual. And, and you've just, you've given like this incredible weapon to, yeah. to, to a small number of players. And it's been really disruptive at the micro and at the macro level, uh, you know, over the last two to three years. And so you can really see, like, I mean, that's changed a lot. Yeah, I mean, you can, you can almost corner the gamma market the way you could you could, you could corner the silver market back in the in the 80s, you know? Oh, you're absolutely. I mean, and, and like, I mean, the whole, I mean, vol is, is such an interesting asset class, but it's changed so much in the last three or four years. You know, you've got dealers now who are, who are stuck you know, short calls like massively like in the market right now. And, and so, and in the same way as, you know, like when, when you still think about the, I mean, this is, I think fundamentally, and I think big pension plans kind of get this wrong too. They go like, I'm being very, 
I'm being a good, I'm being a good player when I, when I buy a big put because I'm, you know, like if the market crashes, I make this money on the other side. And what you don't realize is an option is not really a thing. You know, you buy equity, you bought a thing and you kind of know what you've got, but an option is kind of a promise by someone else to buy and sell on your behalf. Because when you buy an option with a dealer, you know, they have to Delta hedge it. And so on the other side of that trade, if you're, if, if the dealer's on the wrong side and the market starts to rise and they have to buy to cover that, that, you know, the deltas that runs away from them, they become a massive accelerant into the market and same thing on the put side. And so if the dealers get stuck on the wrong side of that trade, which they do all the time now, like this is like, this has been the last three or four years has been a story. It's just, it's just quite an incredible force in the short term. And it can be an incredible short. And so, so you can, you can really like see a lot of market movement when the dealers are on the wrong side of their gamma exposures. Now they, they've started to reprice and they've started to figure it out, but, but it's, it's been a real change in the market because I mean, for the longest time ever, it was, you know, it was priced by puts. And, and, you know, as such, there is this like strong negative correlation between the VIX and the SOV. And like that has gone positive at times. And, 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 and the whole relationship between, you know, vol and market moves is really transforming. And, you know, these one day options are super interesting. Uh, they really, really transport things. But like, I, I would say that they are taking a ton away from like coefficiency <laughs> as we speak. Yeah, um, yeah. You can see how the static guns are able to pull that together. So, sorry, Mike, you had, look like you had something. Oh, I, I think you're going to transition just like I was thinking the same thing. You've got, if you're transitioning to sort of strategies and changes in the market dynamics yeah, well, and all that stuff, let's dig into that. Diversification, right? Like we, yeah. we've done a lot of that on, on previous episodes. I, I wanted to really round it out, right? So once you sort of, we talk about, stocks, bonds, and inflation, hedge assets. I, I'd love for you to kind of rank for me, right? Like what are, what are some of the other alternative betas or premia or whatever that, and I know it's always a, a continuum, right? From beta alpha and, you know, yeah. you've already talked about that a little bit, but, but how would you kind of rank, where would you want to start as you're adding, you know, completely different flavors to the portfolio? in terms of what big players can actually allocate to, you know, where the actual dollar size of these premia are large enough for a sufficient number of players to actually be able to participate. How would you think about adding to the diversification of the portfolio and in what order, if you could, if you could rank them? Huh. So I guess there's a couple of things. So, so first of all, there's the, there's the diversification into assets and there's diversification into strategies. And even though I would say that inflation sensitive, it kind of has to be in between an asset and a strategy. I think if you, I think like what you described is if it was just assets, then it doesn't do what you need it to do. And people aren't going to stick with it because it's got a little spike. But we're talking like once every 10 years or so you need it. And then you look like a loser for nine years. But if you can get strategies that, that can actually make money over time and give you that protection, you're miles ahead just because they're so much easier to stick with. And, and so of the alternative assets to stocks and bonds are obviously, you know, credit and, and then the privates and, and we, and that's a totally separate discussion. But are um, the alternative assets, like, do we even need to go there? Like credit, you know, for credits, short ball at your, it's capital structure. Like, I don't know. I've argued on many, many podcasts and in, in many papers that credit's not even really its own asset class. And is private equity any different than equity? So I, uh, I've also made the exact same argument with credit. I mean, we, when we first tried to look at bringing it in as an asset class at the portfolio level, mm -hmm. like once you cover, it's not an equity risk, it's got a fixed income risk, it's got a credit risk, and it's got a shortfall piece, and it's got the illiquidity. And once you take those pieces out of it, like as an asset class, it doesn't bring anything to your portfolio. But it's actually a very cool asset class in its own because it's, just, it's not exactly risk parity, but it's a nice mixture of four different risk premiums. So it looks pretty good on its own. 
it just doesn't bring as much as people think it does to a, to a total portfolio. But, yes. it's a, but it's a really big universe for value add. And so there's a, there's a lot of room for value add within credit. And I think there's a, there's a lot of, so, so there's well, a massive know, class. Yeah, like yeah, it's, 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 it's take a little away from the equity, right? And, and add a little bit to credit, acknowledging that credit gives you some of that equity exposure. I mean, from a fact, so this is, this was like, you know, this is once again, going back to the work we're doing teachers at the portfolio level, but like from, we tried to get things into a factor perspective. And once you transform into a factor perspective, you go, like if your factors are, Either call it growth and inflation, or you call it stocks and bonds and, and some short ball and some liquidity, then you mostly just defined credit. You know, you've also come pretty close to defining most of the factors that are in your privates as well. And so, you know, when it comes down to a little bit of the time frame, uh, you know, privates are like they are diversified. Like they literally, like they're definitely diversifying in the short term. So if you look at your one year uh, you know, model, privates, they look, they look really uncorrelated. Because they're lagged and because they're smooth. And the smooth means you get to make up their valuations. And, and in some cases, you really just make up the valuations. Mm-hmm. And they're lagged because it doesn't matter. They're not in real time anyway. And so, you know, those two effects are incredibly helpful for a CIO in the short term. They're probably not that useful for a sponsor in the long term. And so that's a, that's a call it like a classic agent management mismatch because the CIO gets paid on return on risk. And, and you know, anything that cuts risk that significantly and recently it's been boosting return is super helpful, but it's not necessarily really accretive to the portfolio in the long term. Um, so, so that's, you know, that's the trade or, or it is in some cases, and it probably is at a certain size. It's just probably it's over allocated to because it looks artificially diversifying and artificially less risky than it actually is. And so from that perspective, it probably gets over-invested too. So illiquidity in general is probably over-invested in portfolios and it, and it has some inherent sources of risk as well that, that you have to be super aware of. But if we say, like, let's set the assets aside and think about strategies, my gosh, there's so many. And, and I think if you're saying, I'm, I'm, I'm going to invest in strategies or I'm going to invest in managers creating strategies, you've got to, you've got to split them into, I'm trying to think about the buckets you put them into. I mean, obviously, you break them down by asset classes and you break them down by holding period. I think it's probably the, the starting point. And then you say within asset classes and holding periods, what have you got? And, you know, holding period is particularly important because it's such a significant source of diversification, right? Like if, if you have managers who are trading intraday you know, or even in and out a couple of times a day, they're for sure going to be uncorrelated with your managers that are holding for five days or for 10 days or 20. And, and they actually create like at the daily level, it was like a different asset. And so from a pure diversification perspective, that's super helpful. I mean, you have a bunch of managers who are uncorrelated, all trading at the same frequency, let's say 10 days, then you know, if over the long time, over the long period, you know, they're, they're, they're doing different things from each other, they're going to look uncorrelated instantaneously. They're all either long or short the same asset at the same time for a given day. So whatever happens that day, they're going to look like they're either they're lost or, or one together. And, and this is, this is one of the challenges with diversification over time is that at some definition of time, you don't, you're not diversifying, right? I think we've talked about this before, but you know, diversification sort of says, we have two assets that are, that are uncorrelated, then I get the square root of two reduction in my risk, like 1.4 times reduction in my risk between two uncorrelated assets. And that happens at any definition of time. But if I have two managers that are uncorrelated over the long term, at any like at some definition of time, they're either both long the SP or both short the SP. And 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 that's that's actually not diversifying. That's a, that's additive. And at, at some definition of time. So at the one day level or the one hour level, your managers don't diversify. They add and subtract to each other. But over time that turns into diversification. And so it's, it's very, very helpful to have managers that have different holding periods. 
And, you know, if you are building a multi-strat of managers, that's probably one of the things you start to think about to start with is how do we get different holding periods? And, and then what are the strategies? What are intraday strategies and what are the risk premiums of those? And, and how do we collect them? And, and my God, there's, there's a lot to think about bringing And what's the capacity of intraday too, right? I mean, conceivably, you know, not everyone can allocate it. Well, not everyone can allocate anything, but, but intraday would be especially difficult for, you know, to allocate a massive amount of capital to, or, or to even get a meaningful amount of risk into for many larger managers. hundred percent. So, so it's extremely hard from an oversight perspective. It's, it's hard from a leverage perspective, a capital efficiency perspective. It's, it's hard from a portfolio construction. So you see, you see like, um, multi-managers doing it and doing it somewhat successfully. You know, if you think if you're a multi-strat and you've got all a bunch of these strategies together, I mean, if you think about this for a second, you go, one of the massive advantages to a multi-strat, especially if they're trading lots of different models in the same space, is netting. And I don't think, you know, it, it, I don't think it's quite as obvious to people like what a big advantage that is. But if you had 10 managers and, and at any given point in time, you know, some are buying the S&P and some are selling, well, then you don't get any netting. Right. And, and well, what is that worth? And the answer is it's worth like a, a shocking amount. Massive amount. Because, yep. Massive amount because transaction costs are so expensive. And and it's such a big part of, of any of any trading strategy. Well, especially and, if there's a performance fee on top of that. Yeah. You're yeah, wrong. So, you're like, wrong on one trade and you're getting 80% of the other trade. Yeah. And, and and once again, this is the difference between cancellation and diversification. But if you if you had only two one manager's long the S P one year and the other one's short the S P the whole year, that's not diversifying. That's just you've got no exposure and you're paying fees. Exactly. One hundred percent certainty one side versus the other. So that's the last thing you want. You don't want cancellation. You want diversification. But if you were to think about like you know, let's say let's say for us, we have like twenty models. And if you look at any one of these models, there's a couple of these. There's a couple of really interesting concepts that come into play. On one hand, you could think about it and you said, like, imagine I was intraday playing and I had lots of different strategies that came and, and I was running like a, what we call a complex event processor, which is, which is responding in real time. It says like, it's 10.02 and your trend following model said buy, or it's 10.14 and this model said do this. Or, and, and if you just do those, all those in real time, yeah, you get that diversification benefit, but, what, but you lose all netting because you've said, I'm trading this at this time and you go and you buy. And then an hour and a half later, you trade this one and, 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 and you're selling and and those don't touch each other. And so you're paying twice the transaction costs. If you can take all those trades and bring them together and trade them at like say one time a day, well then by definition, you know, some are buying, some are selling, and you're gonna net those guys out. And you, and that's that's you know, so so you can net. So you take trading time and instead of trading in real time, you 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 compress that down to one or two or a certain number of times a day. Well then you then you've created a netting process. But the trade-off is you're, you're a bit slower in responding. And so like the question is like, how do I trade off the speed of response versus the, the, the value of this netting? And you've got to quantify both of those. What's my alpha decay? What's my cost of waiting to do a trade versus my netting value? And, and it's, it's quite amazing. Like for us, it's, a, it's, it's one of the assets that you think you have as a manager is like, if you only had one process and say it was a sharp ratio of one, but it, before transaction costs and it's making 10% a year, but your T cost costs 5% a year. It's like, well, that you have to think of that thing as losing 5% in trading costs. If you had 20 of those and you went to bring that, that new one into your process, you might like literally net out something like 75 to 80% of the trading costs. And so that becomes much more accretive. And in fact, it's, it's, it's something that you have when you have multi, like, like multi-processes is kind of this brand new Call it like an asset, this new benefit, which is that if I wanted to run this new process, if I if this was if this was the, if I was a single manager and this was the only thing I did, it, it may not be feasible. But when I when I bring it in and when I net it with the rest of my process, like it's its T costs almost disappear. 
it's a bit of a function of how big it is and how it turns and how it trades with the other stuff. But like, it's, it's quite amazing how much of those T-costs can, can diversify away or just disappear into, into the process. This raises Whereas, another, another quandary, which we also struggle with because we also obviously run multi-strats. But so you've got all these different strategies. They, you know, even if you're, if you're trading them all at the same time, so you obviously you're maximizing the netting effect with that. But attribution gets really tough, right? So you've got different strategies that on their own, for example, may not be particularly accretive, but when you trade them with other strategies, because of the trade netting effects and the diversification you get within the portfolio, it's highly accretive. But then you've got an investor who wants to know where you generated your returns from, right? You can, you can obviously describe that at the market level very easily, but going one level below the market level into the model level or the strategy level, that gets really hard because yeah. you don't know on a net basis how each of these constituents has contributed to the overall process. How do you guys think about that? Yeah, so I guess there's a couple, there's a couple of points there. The, if, you, if you do everything in gross space, so if you do all your models, you say, like, I'm just going to take T-cost as this thing that's charged at the very end. Instead of trying to attribute it back to the models, you can at least describe what the what the end of it like model process was before transaction costs. Because yeah, the gross. There's no way to take that final T cost and give it back to individual models, or, or you're wildly overestimating transaction costs. And, and I don't think that makes a lot of sense. It gets even more complicated if you're doing anything on top of the models, like any kind of portfolio construction, yeah. uh, which which we do, right? So so and then and then it's like, well, like I like to let my models run independently. But every now and then, if, if every single one of them is long equities today, I'm going to say, like, I'm not sure if I want to bet 20 times as much equity as when just because all 20 models like it. It's very infrequent and very likely. But, you know, and so like, there's going to be a point in time when, you, when you're going to lean against the, that aggregate decision. And, and maybe yeah. that should come at a, a negative expected cost and lean against the alpha process. But, but hopefully it's creative on the risk side because like, there are occasional times when, you know, when it wants to do that, you know, those are super risky. Like, if something happens in the market that one day, you could have a really good or really bad day. Uh, but it's pretty random. And yep. so, you know, we, you know, we say, well, we've got aggregate risk that we're trying to control. And now, right. and now you're at the level of I'm, I'm mixing models, I'm netting models. I've got overlays on an aggregate risk. And how do I assign those back to the models? And you just can't. Yep. And, and so the best you can do is, is I say, is talk about the models in gross space and then, and then describe these layers and, and speak of them almost as if they're models themselves. Yeah. Right? This is a transformation process, and, and this transformation process, it transformed risk this way, and it, and it cost this or it added this value. And think of it as a, as a process that's a yield. It's, it's in there because it, you think it's utility accretive. And, and then you always have to just pay attention to how much risk is in that thing relative to these things and, and, and in terms of the utility that you're trying to provide from it. Because it's, it's from a, you know, if you think of it as a, you know, either sharp ratio or utility enhancer, it's, it's got to be either reducing risk or improving return or improving utility in some way that makes it accretive. Yeah, and then um, you're also, you're constrained in your ability to articulate the value of that trade netting too, right? Like, it's actually important to be able to demonstrate, yeah, you could have owned five different funds with, this, with similar exposures, but your net return would be expected to be sort of 40% lower because you're not taking advantage of, of this trade netting. But, you, you know, articulating that in, a, in any sort of defensible, quantifiable way is also very difficult. And then while you can communicate this to institutional investors or, you know, credited or qualified investors, then you can't communicate any of this uh, extra context or color to non-accredited or non-qualified investors, right? Who always operate at a, 
a major disadvantage to qualified investors who you're able to then provide all this extra color, even though it's actually impossible from an accounting standpoint to describe the accretion from all these different strategy sleeves that are trading the same markets within the same, the same account. So yeah. I mean, it, it's just all of these different complexities for different classes of investors that I think are counterproductive. Yeah. I, I mean, I think you can make a statement of if I had no turnover control and no netting, my trading costs would be X. And and you could and like we can do that calculation. That's so like imagine I, I these are independent managers and and you charge a T cost assumption dollar and you go, but it's just what's your number? It's it's es it's an estimate. It's always right? an estimate. It, it, tra tra trading costs it, it, like when it comes right down to any time you do any kind of trade cost attribution, uh, you're going to be estimating at, at that point. If you're going to try and put it back to models, you're going to try and do anything. You have your actual. This is the amount we actually paid. Yeah, and 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 then anything else is an attribution back is going to be an estimate, but you can start with like I mean, and we do do this, and and so it's a if we had no netting, what would our T cost be? And with netting, what's our T cost? And and it's really interesting because it's the what is the incremental transaction cost associated with adding this new model? And you have to say like if we, and even then like adding new models, people always get this wrong. But you go like I'm expecting this model to make ten million dollars because I'm going to put this much in expected sharp ratio of one. But it, it doesn't work that way, right? It's like when you add a new model, unless you take your risk up, the new model doesn't get to make its standalone money. It's just it's just how much did it improve your expected sharp ratio? Because if it, if it only takes your risk up by, by you know one percent, well, you got to shrink the rest of the process by one percent to keep the same risk target. And you know whatever it's expected to make comes out of the other side. And so it's really it always comes down to how much does it improve your expected sharp ratio? And you can also say if I was running this amount of money. Here's the total dollars I'd pay in T costs. And if I was just running this model alone, here's the dollars I pay in T costs. And when I add them together, I have the same risk. What is my dollars in T costs? And it's interesting because occasionally you can add models that, are, that have quite high turnover and you can add it to the whole process and your transaction costs come down. And it has a little bit to do with the size of the model versus the stuff you're doing. It has a lot to do with what is the model buying when the rest of your stuff is buying. And, yeah. and so, you know, if it's truly uncorrelated, you know, it might add incrementally or it might take away because every single time that the rest of the process is buying and this guy's on the buying or selling, you save some transaction costs on this, but you also save all this one. And so you, you can, it, it's quite amazing, but bringing stuff in that turns over quite yeah. high can take your transactions down and, and suddenly, you know, that's a, that's a huge benefit to a multi-strap. Like it's a huge benefit. Well, if you think about it, you're, you're adding a model that has a trading frequency and that trading frequency isn't going to be more, or it's unlikely to be more than all of the other existing models within the portfolio at that moment in time. Is that, am I kind of getting that right? So you've got this high transaction model and you've got 20 models over here. It's unlikely that that one model trades at a more rapid frequency than all of the other models. And then it helps inform those other models on their yes, trading. Yes, you're not accounting many. for the averaging. Yes. So it, yeah. it could trade more rapidly than your average. It has to do with how big it is relative to your average. Because if you've got 10 or 15, is, and like at any given point in time, some are buying, there's called like the latest level is a 50% chance that the rest of your guys are doing is in the opposite direction from this guy's doing. So like right. straight up the bat, if it's small enough, you can come pretty close to 50% of, of coverage. But that's just what this covers of this guy. Every time you do that, this guy covers some of this one as well. And so like, that comes right back on the other side. And so if you later the total savings, it's both of those together, you can get to 75, right. 80%. And so it's a, it's a pretty interesting reduction, meaning that you know, like, if you found, if you found these five processes and five different managers and they're each a sharp ratio one, but like they lose 5% in trading costs, when you bring them all together, or if you bring 20 of these guys together, these incremental managers are only, are, are coming at like 20% 
of, yeah. of, of the turnover, which, right. which is, which is just incredible. And so it's not, we're not talking about the diversification of the alpha. We're talking like that. In addition to that is this massive reduction in cost, which, which is what you can see is like, the, and this is where, you know, they, if you have these, I don't know, like a medallion, like who's, who knows what they're up to, but assume that they're doing a ton of short-term stuff. And the danger with, with individual short-term stuff, once again, as we said, is that you don't get your netting. But if you do enough of it, and then you can aggregate it carefully into slices, you could probably get a ton of netting and just incredible diversification. So, and so time diversification is super important. And, and all of this was just to say, like, if I was putting together a multi-strat, you got to think about the different feature sets that you're diversifying across. And so you're diversifying across strategies and across assets and across time. And that's like three major distinctions into all of that. Across strategies and time, you've got this netting thing to think about, or even assets and strategies of time, you've got this netting consideration, which is, which is an important consideration. Um, you know, I went way off track on your question, but, and then you say, what are the big categories? And so at the global macro level, you know, if you, you've got your, broadly speaking, you've got your carries. And so you know, obviously like most fixed income models start with relative or absolute carries and whether they're risk-based or not is a big question. And if they're not risk-based and you're still going to end up with a bunch of betas underneath it, but like, you know, some concept of carries, like obviously FX carries are really big and well-known strategy. You've got the carries, you've got the values, you've got the qualities and you've got momentums, and then you've got the volatilities. And I think broadly speaking, that captures a lot of them and you can capture that, that set in all of your major asset classes. Then you have, you know, like the other ones like merger arbitrage, classic risk premium, where it's it, like the classic definition of risk premium, where it's like, you know, like someone owns a company, you know, it's trading at 20 and, and you hear that there's a, there's a merger announced and it immediately pops to something and you go, what, what does it pop to? And like, obviously a lot of people spend a lot of time thinking what they think it should, it should go to, but it goes to, it used to be a company that's prices moves, you know, based on earnings and it had a beta and, and suddenly what you own for a brief period of time is a coin flip. And it's a coin flip on the probability of this merger going through. The price popped from 20 to 30. And if the merger doesn't go through, I guess it goes back down to 20. If it goes through, it goes to something. It's, that's usually a posted price. Maybe it's 40. And you go, why is it trading at 30 and not 40? Is it, well, there's an implied probability of this deal going through. And so what you own briefly, you've just made $20. It was at 20 a day ago. Now it's at 30. And now you own this thing, which is no longer a stock. It's a coin flip. And you say, I don't want a coin flip. I don't want to like make or lose $10 on this thing that I have no understanding about. And I'm going to ask someone else. Like someone else can take that trade off for me and they can own that diversify. And I want out. It's a classic risk premium. So someone else will take on and they'll say, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to buy these things and I'm going to, I'm going to bet that there's a certain probability of default and that a certain probably this thing failing. I mean, and, and a certain probability going through and I'm going to price and size this incorrectly. And so that was, you know, merge arbitrage is, is a very classic risk premium. And, and like, I think a beautiful one, if it's done well, where, where I always saw it done badly is on the portfolio construction side, because like, like anything else, people would tend to screw it up on market cap weighted and they go, the size of the deal would dictate how much of it I owned. And the last thing you want when you're flipping coins is to bet a thousand times more here. And then bet because, because at the end of the day, that's going to catch you uh, one day, because the only thing that matters is the big one. And then the other thing to understand is that if you have a whole portfolio of these, have a, a growing beta risk. And we saw this in LA, if the market crashes or if you have a credit crisis or something happens, then all these deals, which you think are independent coin flips, can suddenly be very highly correlated with each other. And so that's like, you have in the background a tail beta risk in merge arbitrage as well. But like, like a, a great risk for you to, to add if you can, if you can find it. And I really ran through like, like quality. There's so many different definitions of quality in, across asset classes, within asset classes. Like that's a very broad statement. Uh, same How thing do you with think value. about quality across asset classes? So I would say maybe not across asset classes. It's probably better to think of it as across sectors within equities. But it's a um, if you think of 
Yeah, I think like I guess you would not you wouldn't do a cross sexual quality. What you would like the best you would have is a time series definition of quality, and then if you were had like a, a variety of asset classes with a time session, well, definition of quality, some are higher, some are lower at any given point in time, and you can kind of think of that as a relative. You could even risk that guy if you wanted to, and we actually do have one model that does that. But but it's like that, that it, it's a very sloppy definition of cross sectional quality. But it's you know like a series of time series definitions brought together will have an over underweight cross sectors and of a quality definition, you know. And then so we got think about FX for a second and say like the major risk premiums in, in FX would be momentum, value, carry, and then maybe some definition like like country like whether they whether they sit in value or not like value quality and that would be kind of like a, a throw together concept there. But that, like, even that that three legged stool in FX is a pretty powerful starting spot, and then you always got your vol. And so, so value would be sort of like per, relative to purchasing power parity kind of thing. That, I mean, that's a very weak definition. Yeah, yeah, that's a good starting point. And it's a surprisingly decent starting point of a long term definition of value in, in FX. And then if you think about credit, so credit credit still has like well, credit's complicated because as we said, it's it's a mixture of things. But you know, credit is going to have a term structure piece to it. And it's going and like the credit. So the interesting, when we first started trying to think about, and this was like back to 2006, 2007, we were talking about like bringing credit in the portfolio level, but way back before we were talking about bringing it into our risk parity. And so we were building our risk parity as a mixture of stocks and bonds and commodities and, and strategies across all these assets. And, and when it came time to look at credit, we found credit is a super weird asset class, especially if you're staring at IG. And this is back in 2006, 2007, but we were looking at it going, it's really weird because if you just invest in, in investment grade, if you look at the returns of that process over time, they're not very good. But meanwhile, if you go to the academic literature at the time, it was literally saying, like, we don't understand what's going on with credit. Why does credit pay so much? Like it's, it's the credit spread is paying more than it should. And, and, and there was this massive disconnect between what the academics were saying. Like, look, if you look at company by company, look how much, look at the probability default and look at the actual defaults and look what they're getting paid. And like, this is like, we can't explain why the spread is so rich. Meanwhile, the people investing in credit are making very little. And, and it was super unusual. I mean, it turns out the disconnect was most people when they invest in credit are, you know, for the same reason that you'd see that like the bond investors, they're trying to get some duration and they're sitting at the back end of the credit curve. And if you, if you're saying like, I own credit, I, I buy a 10 year bond and then maybe by time it touches seven, I roll it back out to 10. And if you're doing that sort of seven to 10 rolling up process, which is where the vast majority of people sit, you capture almost none of the credit risk premium. It's, you get all the risk and almost none of the fun. I mean, the sharp ratio there is, is almost nothing. But if you hold credit right through the maturity, which means that you're holding companies that like with one to two years of default and, and the other default or they don't, it's a very different structure. But if you hold it, that's where the, all the sharp ratio is. And you go, that's super weird. And then once again, it was like early on in our research going, that's it's clearly a leverage issue because to get the amount of risk that you need and to get the exposure you need and, and, and the cash that you need to hold the stuff at the front end, like very few people hold bonds right through to they either like right through to time zero. But if you do, that's where all the sharp ratio is. You go, why is everyone out here? And it's like, well, there's two reasons. And the first one is like, and they're both classic crowded reasons. The first one is the vast majority of credit players are just rolling this process out, thinking they're collecting the risk premium because they're taking the risk without knowing that, that there's this massive kink in the curve because you've got these people selling here and buying here. And then the other side is like, it turns out that the IG credit curve is, is the discount curve for corporate liability for pension players. Yeah. And so if you want to immunize your pension plan, that's the piece you have to hold. It's like, well, you should never be investing in the space where people are forced to be investors because that's going to be very naturally crowded. It's the last place in the world you want to be. But the vast majority of people playing credit at the time were out there at the back end of the curve where there was just like no sharp ratio and 
all the risk. It's like and the so, long end of the duration curve for the insurance sector and yeah. for the for the exactly yeah, yeah. So you know, credit like my God, like like if you just wanted to outperform credit, all you would do is just buy from five or six years and hold it right through to maturity. Like like seeing the higher share price, you go, is that a risk premium? Yes. Is it an active strategy? Yeah. It's just different than what the vast majority of people are doing. And, and, all, and, the, and all the ETFs, like all the index ETFs, exposure to credit are all constant maturity. So they're all, yes. that's exactly what they're doing. They're constantly rolling yep. into new bonds of our, the, around that target maturity, right? So they're just not collecting that premium. Yeah. So wow. yeah, that, that, I assume this is obsolete information 15 years after we discovered it, but, but it's still, it's, it's quite surprising where it's, it's it, I remember working with the, the head of credit at the time because it, it was just one of those, like, we don't understand. Like, like why, why would you just buy a rolled process of credit, constant maturity? Role? Like, why is, why is the sharp ratio so low when, when it looks like we haven't been a lot of defaults and we know that they're paying a lot? And the answer is, well, because it's it's literally the curve has a pretty significant kink because this is where the buyers are and this is where the sellers are. And and it's huge pressure points. And if you just hold past that, there's there's something quite interesting there. You know, it's the same thing. We talked about this a lot. You know, if, if all you're allowed to invest in is investment grade, well, then every time something gets downgraded, you're forced to sell it. And and that's you know that it's you you wouldn't sell it if you didn't if you didn't have to. And you know it's a bad trade, you know it's a money losing trade. But across that, the all constraint of if I if I own this Nate once they're being downgraded, I'm going to get fired. I'm, like, I'm happily going to sell it, and I'm going to give that money to someone else happily. And that transfer of utility is, is a classic risk premium. So if you're an unconstrained investor buying the fallen angels, I mean this is like these are like twenty year old well known strategies, but buying the fallen angels is a, is a very winning strategy, and, and it, it continues to be. You know, it's amazing. And like a number of managers have come out and tried to launch these fallen angels ETFs. And I always look at them and go, this is such a great risk premium to own. And then they, you know, a year later, they delist them because nobody's interested. Well, and I guess the reason it exists is because people can't do it. I mean, it is, yeah. like it's, as, as long as you're, if you're an unconstrained investor, you absolutely should. You know, once again, these aren't really, maybe they're strategies. I, 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 and if you think about it that way, I mean, I mean, you're seeing just an absolute ton of overriding strategies that are coming into the market nowadays. Wow. Um, you know, cause, cause index enhanced and like, it, to me, it's quite incredible, you know, how much of these you're seeing. And, and once again, these are stuffing the dealers full of like the crazy amounts of gamma that they're trying to handle in the short game. And so, so, you know, it's just like, but, um, you know, those are very simple strategies. I, I, I'm not a big fan personally of, of every aspect of that, but like, you know, if you build a proper vol selling process and size it right, like, like, like vol selling within FX, within equities, of course, is the main one. And to a certain extent, some in commodities, like there's, there's interesting opportunities there. So if you think about like, like what are the major strategies that very like, a, a, as I would have defined them back in 2006, 2007, asset by asset, you've got a, like actually got a, let's call it like a low vault if you want to define it that way. Like where's the least leverage point within assets? You've got a low vault piece, you've got an eventual piece, you've got a vault piece. You've got a carry and you've got like some vol, some value versus quality definition. And then every major asset probably has some sort of seasonality or cyclicity in it as well. Yep. Yeah. And so that basket is probably like the modern alternative risk premium basket. And then I would say like, you know, the next generation that we sort of focused on a little bit is like, well, what about the players playing those baskets? Because if there's all those baskets and all those players, and, and in many cases now, the risk premium of the player playing the basket is stronger than the basket itself. And, and you'll see this all over, and like, that's by the way, longer term macro, you know, ETF index anticipation, you know, like, like, like trying to, trying to anticipate names coming in out of the indices. Like you've got so many players who are so big and, and doing that. It's such aggressive size now. Like, like in anything, you can easily get more people offering the insurance than, than you have people buying it. And you can get caught on the other side of that trade. I mean, it's almost like, like I think a lot of those strategies, which has sharps of two, have just gone like minus two because very, very quickly, it's like too many people tried to hoard toilet paper during COVID. And then 
and then all try to give it back at the same time. It's like you're you're literally trying to buy the toilet paper before someone else buys it, and hopefully there's enough buyers to buy it from you. But if too many people do that, you can get you can get caught holding the toilet paper. If you don't mind the analogy. So I um, wanna I wanna highlight something that you that you sort of you said, and but it, it, you kind of glossed over as though, as though it's sort of a given. But you know, even all these different premia, you, you know, you talked about carry, and then you talked about FX carry, you talked about vol selling and equities, you talked about value, and most people think about value equities. But you've got all these different. Typically, you've got all these specialists, right? And you've got, you know, people who are familiar with value. They like buying, you know, cheap companies or cheap credits or, or what have you, right? But the real magic for ball selling carry doesn't matter. The real magic is in selling all the ball, is in getting all the carry, is in arbing all the value across all the asset classes, all the different securities to the extent that you can then, you know, trade against the baskets. There's a whole other level there, but just the kind of diversified global premium strategy, it's available. Well, it may not be available to everybody, but it's becoming more available every year. And most people just take little pieces of it, right? Like I've got a, a value tilt in my portfolio or a quality tilt in my portfolio, but it's purely on the equity side. When if you're just in, into FX carry, that actually doesn't have a very attractive profile. It used to have a more attractive profile. Now the profile isn't attractive at all. But it's probably coming back in mean, four or five fantastic. years there where like, there was no carry signal because the central banks drove all the interest rates down to zero. That's right. Uh, you know, it's, I bet you there's fat carry right now in a lot of places, you know, especially yeah, versus developed. Like, I mean, it's, it's suddenly back. Yeah. But, but yeah, that pillar of value and carry and momentum is, is pretty powerful almost everywhere. Um, you know, and, ATR talks a lot about is value getting it from everywhere, right? Yep. And this is where I think systematic investing is interesting because, like, not to take away from discretionary players, like they, they have, like, you know, I think there's a really interesting marriage between discretionary and systematic. And because, you know, at difficult turning points or when the world hasn't looked the same, discretionary people have a chance to, to see into the future. And they're good at that. They can add a ton of value where, where the systematic players may get caught in those structural shifts. But in a world of more stability, the systematic player and the breadth it just can't be beaten and, will, and can really do quite well. And so those two, like, they, they really do diversify at difficult times. But the expertise in systematic investing is in the systematic investing. And so you'll see that like if you do carry in FX or fixed income or equities or vol or credit, it rhymes so much across those that the expertise is in building the models as opposed to the asset class expertise required to go capture it. And it's the yep. same for almost everything. I mean, I say if you're building a systematic model or, or, or manager, you would never have a commodity carry expert. It makes no sense. And, and, and then you might you might want to talk to a discretionary commodity trader and make sure that you got all the pieces right. But at the end of the day, the, the commodity carry model is going to be 99% resonant to the FX carry and to the fixed income carry. And, and there's obviously going to be a little bit of like asset class specifics that you have to understand and know. Yeah. But the... But once you pass that, the, the model building piece of it, and like the signal generation, the risk calculation, the portfolio construction, the putting all the pieces together, and like it should be the expertise is in the model building as opposed to in the asset classes is needed to capture that. And and, and there's a little bit of expertise that the asset class require, but I think quite a bit less. And and so the systematic trader can capture all of those. In fact, I would say a small number of traders could probably capture all of those strategies all at once pretty well. Yeah. And, and then you say like a discretionary investor could probably go in and, and really clean up on the, around the edges. And, and, and those two could be, could be quite helpful together. But the, like you say, like, how do you collect all those things? You know, it's, it's actually not as difficult as it sounds. I mean, I think if you started to build these processes and models like bit by bit, and, and like the, the advantage of systematic investing is once you've built a model and built it well, it just goes off and runs. It's like an annuity and you can start to build the next one to build the next one. And, you know, you build 
five, 10 models a year, after two or three years, you've got a really interesting diversified suite of processes. And some of these can be built much quicker because, because like I said, they, they, they ride in such significant and obvious ways. And, and so, you know, and, and, and this is not a new story. I mean, there's, there's been a, you know, a number of very successful multi-strack risk premium collectors over the years. And, mm -hmm. and like anything, they're going to have good years and bad years. And, and the space gets more or less crowded. And as the space gets crowded, returns get driven down. But, but I'm a solid believer that the space will never get so crowded that it will never make any money. Because like on one side, you've got people with actual demands who are like, they're always going to have the constrained investors. You're always going to have the investors who are in the spot. There's always going to be a flow of wealth. They're there and they're naturally there. You're going to have demands for insurance. Like, like you're going to have the players creating the risk premiums. And if you've got other players collecting it, when too many people come in and collect, yeah, look, for a while, it can get to have a very low or even negative. And then those players will leave or the size will fix or, you know, like, like all of that were normalized. And at the end of the day, because this natural demand is there, these players will, they will need an equilibrium where a correct equilibrium risk premium collection process will and can exist on, on average over time. And the only question is, you know, what is, what is the expected sharp ratio of that process long-term? You know, it's never going to, you know, we talked about this four or five years ago, it's never going to be as good as it was in the early 2000s because it was just too unknown at that point and there just weren't enough people doing it. It's never going to go to zero because, because naturally these players will leave if it does. And so there's the, what is the sharp ratio that will keep players interested and where does that balance to? And I, you know, and, and like, it comes down to the, everyone, everyone always throws out a number. It's like, what's, what's the sharp ratio per strategy? Is it, is it going to be 0.25 or 0.35 or 0.4 or 0 0.5? And what is the sharp ratio at the aggregate process? Is it going to be 0.5 or one or one and a half? And, and I don't know where that settles. I, I would probably guess these things each come in at like a 0.25 and this thing comes in at a one, but that's right. an extraordinarily helpful, you know, and I think. People have been so spoiled by the equities over the last, you know, 10 or 15 years. They go, why? Like, I can get that from equities. It's like, yeah, the equities are a 0.5 long term. And you just have to be careful with equities because like, they make very, very high sharp ratios for a while. And they make very low sharp ratios for a while. If you could find a, like a proper one that you could put next to the 0.5 of equities and the 0.4 or whatever it wants, you'd be so happy long term. Yeah. But, but it's just a, it's just one of those things are, and you have to buy into it. You have to understand it. And you have to trust over, over long term that it will be there. And, and I find that that's probably the biggest challenge of systematic investing is because people don't intuitively, it doesn't resonate with many people as intuitively saying like, I buy cheap companies. Like, like it's something really, really obvious and simple sounding. It's like, I, I buy things when they're cheap and, and they're on their way up. I buy up a dollar for 50 cents. Yeah, I buy, exactly. You know, and you have to, you know, just trying to explain a little bit more, something a little bit more complicated is that when it doesn't go well, people lose faith in it much quicker. And, and you can have a value investor who's just been crushed for a year and they'll come back and say, it's worth even more. Just trust the, me. You know, and, it's and even go, better. Yeah, of course it is. Because it was worth that then and say, it's even better now. And, and if the S&P falls 20, 30%, people don't go, it's never going to make money again. They say, we should pile in and buy it here. But there's a whole bunch of people who, you know, if this strategy has a bad run, think, ah, oh, maybe it was never a thing or maybe it never will be a thing or maybe it's, yeah, you know, it's an armed away, or well, it, it comes down away. to that, and, that and decision. Even if it has, like, like you can argue that, like, like yeah, the expected return of the S and P has been driven down by until it finds yeah. the level at which its expected return is positive. That's what any risk premium is doing at any given day. Is like the person led you to it is trying to is trying to find the marginal price where they're on expectation their their expected return is is proper for the risk they're taking. Like, you know, the marginal price center is trying to determine the price at which their yeah. expected return meets some required return on risk. It should be the same for everything. And so there's no reason, except if you have too many people trying to sell at the same time or two people trying to buy at the same time, the price will adjust and move and those players will come in and out. 
that should be a natural expectation of what this process is going to be. And, and it has a fairly long life to it. But that's fine. If your portfolio is structured in the long term, you should be totally fine with that. Yeah, you, you hit on something that we struggle with or like the intuition of the strategy and the ability to stick to the intuition. So providing the extra underlying insights is incredibly useful, but sometimes still falls short when, yep. you know, and, and their friends aren't doing it, right? So you've got a little bit less intuition than you'd expect. You have a little less crowding from a cohort of, of those who uh, you're maybe benchmarked against. It leads to some pretty, yeah. pretty significant frailties. Well, on why the aren't you just buying side. NVIDIA? I think right. is the, uh, right. to come full circle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, and, and look, I think what you guys have done with your, what do you call it? Your, like when you're lately in your alpha and your beta together, your return oh, stacking. stacking. Yeah, yeah, I think like, like everything old is new again, but like I got a portable alpha. It makes a ton of sense because there's an investor out there who goes, I can't face the benchmark loss of this underperforming the benchmark. And it's like, that's great. Here's a process that, that gives you the benchmark return plus this alpha. It just seems really smart to me. So I, I think that's a great product and I, and I hope that it has some uptake. Nice plug. Yeah. I'm <laughs> we'll sure Thanks. We'll <laughs> now we are, we are coming up in the end. Yeah. So are there any thoughts that you had that we haven't covered that you wanted to put out there for investors to think about things that you're contemplating that are hot on your plate right now that, uh, that we haven't talked about? I mean, I, I think we've covered a lot. I mean, like, sure. obviously I always have a lot to, to, to talk about, but the, from the topics we've covered, I think we've covered them pretty well. And, and I feel like I apologize to people because I know I say the same things we've we, you know, two or three times in, I'm probably repeating myself quite a lot now. But yeah, look, I'm happy to do this. I love doing this. I love the conversation. I think you guys ask great questions and I'd love to come back and do it again at some point. Love it. Well, you're, you're a great guy to bookend the, the beginning or the end of a season. I can tell you that. <laughs> Whatever we have you on, they're clamoring for more, man. So we got to yeah. keep them starved for, for more Schindler. But, uh, exactly. Exactly. See you for the next time. Exactly. Okay, listen, thanks a lot, guys. Thank you for listening. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.